Welcome to In The Know, the podcast for those who value the power of knowledge in the dynamic world of financial services. In an industry where the landscape is constantly evolving, having access to information can be the difference between success and stagnation. We bridge that gap by bringing new conversations with leading individuals and influencers who shape the financial world. We will deep dive into the heart of the sector, uncovering insights, trends, and strategies that are not readily available to the masses. Because in the competitive world of financial services, being in the know isn't just an advantage, it's a necessity. Okay, uh, welcome to this episode of In The Know, the premier podcast for financial services. I'm your host, James Walker, and today we have a stellar lineup of real human guests to discuss AI and the impact on financial planning. First, we have Gillian Hepburn, the head of UK intermediary solutions at Schroders. Next, we're joined by Ben Hampton, CEO of Wealth Wizards, and Ian McKenna, the founder and director of FTRC. Welcome to you all. For the purposes of this conversation and for the people listening, when we refer to AI, we are specifically discussing chat, GPT, language models, and AGI. And in simple terms, chat GPT is a type of AI that can generate human-like text based on information it's been trained on. And AGI, or artificial general intelligence, represents the next level of AI where machines could potentially perform any intellectual task that a human can. So scary, or maybe not, maybe not. Um, Gillian, I'm going to turn to you, if I may, first of all. Um, we're going to talk about the current state of AI integration. And I'm going to be using your Pulse report, which I believe was issued earlier on this year, yeah. um, which was aimed at advisors. And I was very interested to see that only 8% of advisors expect to incorporate AI within the next year. So what do you believe are the current barriers to its immediate adoption? So um, firstly, thanks very much for having me on this. And you're right, the advisor survey uh, took place in May and there was over 400 advisors that took part in that. So um, I, I think the challenges are at the moment, I think there's probably three. One is, um, let's face it, the tech, um, uh, for the, I would say the ordinary person, right? Somebody like me is only about nine months old. I, I think we probably all first started hearing about it at Christmas time where we were all kind of playing around with it and thought, well, what is this and what, what does it do? And that, I guess, leads me into the second point. You know, it's, it's quite early days with this, but what actually is it? And, and I know we're not going to go into the details today, which is great because uh, that's not my area. But I think, you know, it's, it's maybe a bit confusing to people as to what, what actually it is. What does it do and, and what's the purpose of it? And, um, and then thirdly, I think specifically looking at advisors and current barriers is probably just simply time and skills. If, if you look at this year, for example, you know, everybody's been really focusing on things like consumer duty. Um, there's been a lot of work taking place in the industry up till the end of the summer getting ready for that. But also tech skills. You know, do we have the right skills in the business to really look at this and identify, you know, where we can actually maximise the benefit? So that that's probably my take on some of the current barriers in terms of the immediate adoption. Okay. And Ben, what are you finding at Wealth Wizards? But I think the key thing is what role will it make and difference it'll make for the customer? I think with all these things, you've got to come back for what's the use case and how it how it makes a difference for the customer. I think people often underestimate how quickly change comes, and that's I think that's the 
the key aspect, but we keep playing with, well, what are the use cases? Where do we think it can add value? Where do we think people will get a benefit? That's really the types of things. I think one of the topics that we've thought a lot about is, or starting to think about is, great financial planners do the figures and the feelings. So given our heritage in automating financial advice, the figures is kind of that algorithmic bit. But what about the feelings? Because the great financial planners bring that feelings part, and that's what gets a customer to value the plan, the reassurance, the peace of mind, gets them to act. And this is where we think some of those kind of early conversations could be really, really interesting in helping a customer to almost navigate and explore some of their beliefs, aspirations, goals, dare I say, yeah. um, in a, a kind of a safe environment. And I think that's where the language models can be really helpful because it's funny how it can prompt you to think about things you've maybe not thought about before. Okay, thanks, Ben. And, and Ian, you have um, a lot of experience and you work with a number of different advisory firms. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of the, the barriers to the adoption? Well, as has already been identified, it's it's a matter of the use cases. And, and I think also being really cautious as to addressing data confidentiality, um, inherent bias, which I, you know, is a significant challenge within AI models. It, it, it's not something that should stop organizations using the technology, but you need to understand it. Um, and also suitable due diligence, um, which is an area where I think across so much technology in the industry, advisors are perhaps not, they're not recognizing the level of analysis they need to do, the due diligence challenges they need to consider before they're putting things into their businesses. Um, and it's, I mean, let's face it, we are facing an enormous societal challenge around due diligence on artificial intelligence because we are frighteningly near to the point at which these things will be more intelligent than humans. Um, so how do we understand what they are doing? Um, you know, just briefly on the point of due diligence, it's so important to understand, you know, the FCA will not allow an organization to put a black box into their system that they don't understand. If they're going to put something into their, their business and processes that generates the advice, they need to understand and make sure that on a, you know, on a given set of criteria, if you tell it X, the outcomes it will generate are Y. You also have to understand what all the different, you know, where will it give advice in certain areas? Where will it move to the edges? They, don't get me wrong. There is enormous potential for AI in streamlining our, streamlining our businesses and facing some of the enormous challenges um, that the, the advisor community has coming well, not over the horizon, they're getting very close, not least that if you look at for anybody under 50, maybe 45, um, the AUA model doesn't really work with people for, for, with lower amounts of investable assets. It won't generate enough income from the advice firm. So we need to completely re-engage the financial models around advice and rebuild 
our processes and systems, that's probably going to mean serving a lot more people, but generating less per customer. Technology is a great aid there. Um, but, you know, we, things like due diligence need to be so important on the agenda. You can't just put these things in without working through the consequences. Thanks, Ian. And Gillian, just coming back to you on, on, on this particular point, if, again, using the, the Pulse report, you know, advisors are looking to adopt it within two to five years. I think it was like 43%. Based on what um, Ian has said, you know, what do you foresee to be the key drivers to the adoption? Um, yeah, I, I thought the 43% in the next two to five years was really interesting, actually, because it was probably higher than I would have anticipated. Um, but I do think, you know, back to the points that have already been made, I think that we will have to see some, or we will see some specific technology changes that will also drive that. So for me, it's things like open banking and open finance. Um, you know, these have got to deliver um, incredible possibilities for advisors to streamline the process, particularly things like fact-finding, for example. But, you know, we talk a lot about triggers and nudges, and I do think that... Um, some of this technology, when we fit it all together and think about the end-to-end -end customer journey, then AI has to have a, a part to play in that. I also think, if you look again at consumer duty, about value and, um, you know, customers we hear time and time again, value time that we spend in front of advisors. And we could argue that both ways in terms of where I can help, in terms of clever segmentation to help deliver different business models, particularly for those in sort of early accumulation. But... And um, for those who want to spend time with their advisors, you have to hope that AI will actually deliver advisors more time because it does some of the heavy lifting in the back office um, and means that they can spend more time um, delivering face-to-face -face advice where it's required. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the regulator is looking at things like the uh, advice and guidance boundaries. You know, there's been a lot of talk about this. I think even just last week at the conference, um, the Director of um, Consumer Investment said that there was a review that would lead to a fundamental overhaul of advice in the UK. Now, I think we probably all agree that there needs to be some kind of an overhaul in terms of how do we get more people um, to take advice and to think about their long-term um, financial future. So, so at the end of the day, um, all of this has got to move our industry towards a better place where we can encourage more people to get advice about their investments and about their futures. So um, so I do think there will be technology changes, but also there will be there'll be industry shifts as well that will continue to drive us. Sure. Ian, did you want to come in? Yeah, can I, I, I think it's really important as the regulators looking at the advice boundary it's an open secret that the regulator has seen technology as the solution to all their problems for probably the last decade and give them their due of regulators around the world. Um, they are far more open and engaging around technology uh, and digital than, than most other regulators. You know, they are legitimately, you could, you could call the FCA a global leader in that respect. But I think we need to be really careful as an industry to caution them, they keep coming up with a desire to dilute standards and make things easier. And I don't think they need to. You know, if we're going to end up with the use of technology 
reducing the highest. We've got the highest standards of consumer protection for financial advice in the world, jointly with Australia. I mean, I, I, I spend a lot of time internationally at uh, conferences looking at how technology evolving. Um, I was involved with a conference last year with the um, Canadian Financial Planning Association where a commentator from the US actually pointed at the UK as the, the, the jurisdiction that has the best consumer protection um, also pointed out it's the hardy, hardest place to build technology to meet our regulatory standards. But we can do that. And I think it's just so important that we consistently get them, push the message at, at the regulator. You've got the best standards in the world. Don't dilute them. The technology can rise to the challenge. I do think the regulator has expected the technology to come along more quickly Again, you know, they keep going back to RDR and saying it hasn't worked. I don't agree. They haven't given it long enough to have an impact and go through. And we're the last thing they should be doing right now is moving the goalposts. Because actually the goalposts are in the right place. The technology is coming along to drive enormous change. It, it, the technology is coming along that will enable us as an industry to take financial advice to back to what it should be which is a utility everyone can get to, not a luxury for the rich. Um, and we're right on the cusp of the right sort of change in very positive ways. So I think the regulator needs to be so careful that, you know, they haven't done everything perfectly in a lot of areas, but actually on digital, I have to give them a huge amount of support and credit and just say, stick with it. You are on the right path and we will see technology that will enable the transformation they want to achieve. It's arriving very soon now. I'll come back to that later. But. All right. So it's arriving very soon. So we've got the technology. It's happening, the regulator. Ben, I'm going to come to you on this one because I think it's quite important for um, perhaps advisors to think about how they can uh, emphasize their value compared to um, AI-driven type advice. So what can advisors do to emphasize their value on that? Yeah, thanks for that. Just a build a bit on Ian's. I sit on the industry working group, actually, that's looking at the advice guidance boundary review and kind of echo Ian's points around the technology. And it's interesting, Ian, you, you've been following this industry and the technology change for so long. I think you say in that and kind of, you're nearly there. That's really, that's interesting because you watched it and you're ahead of the curve. So it's interesting. I think the, the bit I would add to it is, I don't think they're going to change what advice is. It's about what help is. And they're really focused on what better guidance is, actually. But the really interesting bit for me is more helpful guidance, and they've called people have called it personalized guidance, regulated guidance, lots of chat. Ultimately, for me, all that's going to do is make people realize, ooh, there's a bit more to this decision than I thought. You've been more helpful, and I actually believe that will, you know, guide better guidance will actually complement and connect with advice. So Ian's point around the technology is bang on, because unless you keep that that macro ability to make it more accessible, and it's not just for the wealthy. Actually, all you're going to do is drive up more help people going, I actually realize I need it. Because I do think there's a population of people that don't value it, linking to your question, James. They don't value what the advisor does because it's intangible. It's that intangibility that is the problem, I think, with advice. And actually, technology, whether it's AI or otherwise, it gives you the chance to focus on the bit that the customer can value. And the key thing that we always talk about is, how do you bring the value forward? How do you help the customer to see, ah, this is what this could mean? 
that retirement planning would be a good example. There's no point saying, what do you want to do in retirement? Do you want to retire early, James? Well, am I living on baked beans or am I living on what I want to live on? I think it's how you make it tangible is the key thing. So look, cannot underestimate that financial advisors, the best ones do such an amount of things. They've got that, the tax, the legislative, the technical aspects, but don't underestimate their ability to coach someone to understand what they really want. The number of customers we've seen that have kind of had a retirement plan and then this was in a previous role I did and they would come back and it's like, you can retire, you can afford to retire, you can do all the things you've talked about. You love your job, you don't want to retire. And I think that's the power that a great financial planner can do. And I think, look, there's no reason why the tech, that AI can't uncover some of those things. But I think innately we're all human, right? And how do you leverage that human connection the skill is where is that bit valued? It's not valued capturing some fact-finding data. It's not valued even running loads of sensitivity analysis. It's making sure you can say, given what you were trying to achieve, let's try this other thing. Or what, what do you think about this? It's that moment when you hear a client's voice almost change and they've, they've kind of prompted them to go, oh God, I've not thought about that. And I think that's the bit I always love when I used to work in a, a back at Star Life Aberdeen, Aberdeen and we had a hybrid advice process. You'd listen to the calls and you'd kind of go, you've nailed it. You've done something that's made it tangible for the customer to go, well, if I could retire today, I would. I thought about that because I never thought that was possible. So I think the value comes from the connection. Uh, I think the value comes from the coaching, the listening, the ability to prompt. Um, and ultimately, I still think advice gets people to act, right? Don't underestimate that we don't all throw the duvet back in the morning, unfortunately us guys are kind of interested in this stuff. Unfortunately, the average person isn't. Uh, and it's how do we do that? But I think a combination of all these bits, I think the advice guys boundary will drive significant change, but in guidance and then the ability for the technology to connect those things. What you can't have is a, a proposition where you've gone, oh, you've helped me a real lot. Actually, I need more hands-on help. And then you go, great, we'll hand you off to an advisor and you start again. It's the connectivity of the data flow. It's the open finance stuff that that Gillian talked about. It's how do we bring all these things together? But look, we're human beings. The human connection is clear. I'm not saying AI can't do that because it will be able to, but it's how do we leverage those coaching, those prompts, all that type of stuff is really powerful. Um, don't underestimate that can be the real value of driving the peace of mind that advice can do. Yeah, Gillian, did you want to add to yeah, that? Yeah, I would, I would absolutely completely agree with that. Um, you know, one of the, the benefits I see for this is around education and coaching. And we're seeing a rise of certainly coaching, I would say, in the industry. And I think that's a great way to engage maybe next generation to get them without having to take what I would call full fat advice or financial planning. And um, let's start to help you think about your finances. You know, what do they look like? What might you want to do with them? And um, and I, I think we've got to be quite creative as well in terms of thinking about what are the new advice models going to look like because um, you know things are not going to stay the same and I think it's back to the earlier point wasn't it it's about finding time to sit back and think what do my client segments look like what do I really need to deliver where have I got challenges you know as, as you probably know I talk a lot about wealth transfer in the industry you know, which is actually about wealth retention isn't it within businesses but if you know 60% of people inherited wealth will not use the you know their parents advisor how do you actually have that early engagement with next generation? And it isn't always about, you know, it is about encouraging them to save and invest and take protection, think about mortgages. But sometimes it's just through education and coaching and, and early engagement. And I do think um, 
you know, AI and some of the other technology that's out there can really help with some of that kind of very much early engagement and also start to build trust. You know, I trust somebody that actually helps me. Um, and and I, and I think that's really important, back to the trust question that you asked earlier. Um, you know, consumer duty, the big challenge, wasn't it? It was about price and value. When people said, well, how do I, how do, how do I calculate that when actually my value is in somebody trusting me and, and helping them sleep at night and all that good stuff? And I, I think when clients experience advice, that's when they really learn to appreciate it and, and trust the advisor. And and I think the more people then that we can encourage to take advice um, and work with them, whether that be in a, a fully financial planning journey or whether I talk about people being able to weave in and out of advice, you know, take, have advice when I need it. And I, I absolutely fundamentally believe that technology will enable to support some of these different customer journeys that we perhaps don't see in the industry at the moment. But I do think there's pockets of it where, you know, the technology can really drive the data so that when I do have to speak to somebody, I've got everything at my fingertips. I don't have to go through all of the background again. So it's how do we use technology to create different client journeys? But it's about getting people to trust financial advice right from the very beginning of, of their financial planning journey, whatever that might look like. Thank you, Julian. I think, Ian, I'll come to you on this one. So robo-advice then. So that was deemed to be a, a big one a few years ago. And we were talking, we've just been talking about technology. We're talking about trust, et cetera. And a few years ago, we had robo-advice and that didn't seem to take off in terms of where it could have gone. So are we in danger of repeating the same mistakes where we're looking at AI as potentially being something and actually that human trust is still not there. So there are going to be people who pull away from it. So Ian, over to you. No, we're not. Uh, the simple, I, I mean, you know, so-called robo-advice, and it was an awful term um, that really the only people that, that liked it were the photo editors on, on newspapers, be they trade or national, because it gave them the opportunity to put Schwarzenegger type, um, you know, pictures in, 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 into the papers. I mean, what was called robo-advice, um, in the overwhelming majority of cases, um, there weren't any robots involved and, th and there was no advice. Um, you know, it was essentially a way to distribute model portfolios. Let's call it what it was. Um, we are now, being, and, and, and I've made the observation on many occasions that so-called so robo-advice was, if you like, the Model T Ford of automa uh, automated advice you know we are just beginning to get into you know ben's firm done some some great work in this that area and and have others um we're just beginning to get into the real uh, meat financial advice if, you, if you're going to get into the detail of financial advice doing something that is a simple little bit of decumulation sorry of accumulation savings fine but that that's not really an advice process at all you know where we are going now is we are beginning to see systems and you know one thing i would say to every advisor is make the technology work hard where it can do you are never going to think faster than a silicon chip when it comes to calculations 
you know, let the tech do that. And absolutely, focus on what you are good at, building and managing relationships. But to come back to Gillian's point, and I absolutely agree with you, we've got to engage with the next generation. But but there is a, a subject that I think gets overlooked quite a lot, which is two-thirds of partners where one partner dies, actually the numbers are just the same, it's between 60 and 80%, depending on which study you want to believe, of people yeah. where their partner dies, changes their part, they change the financial yeah. advisor. So actually the kids don't get a say in that because it's already been the partner. Um, and I absolutely don't want to sound sexist, but, but you know, statistically... Women live longer than men, so it is normally the the, the lady that's that's inheriting. Um, and then within within couples, there is usually one partner that is more focused on the financial facts than the other. And an enormous mistake that so many advisors make is they don't engage with, if you like, the non-financial partner. And this is actually an area where there's some very valuable technology now emerging, explicitly designed to help you capture and understand the values of the second partner in the relationship who is not as engaged. So I think, you know, when we're looking at um, wealth transfer, while intergenerational absolutely is crucial, um, perhaps that's a subject to talk about how we address at a future occasion, we really need to look at there's a further stage of wealth, wealth transfer. It's, you know, frequently when the person that's not been engaged on the financial side suddenly is, in fairness, probably overwhelmed, very difficult decisions to take, at a time when there are other things that they're more focused on. Um, can I come back to a couple of other points that were made earlier? Um, this whole point about making advice tangible, um, we are absolutely going to see within the next few years the emergence of virtual reality systems. Now, now VR has been talked about a great deal and has never really got, never really taken off. But it is a a when, not if. I mean, you know, the pricing of the new Apple hardware is disappointing. I I think VR will take off enormously once we start to get quality VR headsets that are sub £500. But let me talk about how you can put that into context. When, and I absolutely, I know companies building this tech now, several of them, and essentially... You'll start to have conversations with your clients where, where taking it on a stage from meeting clients from teams, you'll be basically saying, do you want to put your VR headset on? And you'll actually be able to take clients into their own future life. So the a future generation of financial planning tools will take the customer's current financial position look at their investments that they're saving and roll them forward into the life they are likely to experience in 20, 30 years' time 
when they retire. And I think that's the point. You know, that's the hardest thing. Um, there's a behavioral finance concept called hyperbolic discounting. We naturally, as humans, hugely discount the value of, of money we put away from the future. We don't see it as important. Actually, it's incredibly important. And if we can bring people actually to experiencing, um, Aviva did a set of adverts four or five years ago where they mocked, they mocked this up, if you like. They took a series of real customers, um, you know, got them involved with makers, artists, um, et cetera, and put them into their future life. And apparently, talking to people that were involved in that campaign, the impact on the individuals that it was done to was really quite dramatic. Um, there was a lady who actually was being, you know, saving well, and she was going to have a really nice lifestyle. There was a guy in his early 40s, very nice lifestyle at the moment. He was going to be getting on a bike and cycling to the library because that was probably about the only way he'd be able to get online. Um, and apparently, you know, that was for some of the people involved, it, it, it was quite traumatic. So, you know, we do need to look. And that technology, I think, is another four or five years off, but it's only another four or five years off. Um, and then just to come back with one very brief point um, about the advice guidance boundary, one thing I do hope the regulator does do, we need to make it clearer to people when they're getting the benefit of advice. Too many systems are emerging that are guidance, not advice, and it's not clear to be. You can look at the outputs of two very similar systems and they look virtually identical. One gives the customer the security of knowing it's regulated financial advice. The other is guidance for which no responsibility has been taken. And I'll be honest, I don't think the regulator's done enough to make that clear to people. Thanks, Ian. Ben, you've been nodding furiously on that. Um, I'll, I'll allow you to come back on that one. But also, um, again, looking specifically in terms of um, what advisors can do, um, because I think that VR stuff is quite scary. So, But if I was a financial planner, what other aspects of AI could we... Could they be adopting in the near future? Yeah, I think there's a couple. Of, I was just nodding. So I think Ian's spot on in terms of that guidance. But that's it is it's um, people don't know, and it's like it's kind of left hanging. Like, oh, it's great. It's no advice is the closest thing you get to a guarantee, right? Because it's high quality. You, you know, you, you can go to falls if something goes wrong. There's all that protections that's there. But yeah, I think in terms of the AI application, I think we touched on it earlier on around um, the due diligence, the regulatory piece. It's for me, where is it explainable, right? So I know you can get explainable forms of AI, okay, and non-explainable, but it, it comes back to confidence. You don't want that black box. So the kind of use cases for me are kind of, we've already touched on that, the figures and the feelings bit. So you could kind of, you know, combine some of that stuff we've talked about, the VR, understanding what you're trying to trying to achieve. You know, imagine if you're saying it's whether it's the life you're living um, or actually the whole days you're going to go on, you could, you know, it makes it tangible and, and there was um there's a bit on um, Disney Plus. So I've got small children, Disney Plus, but National Geographic on it. And Chris Hemsworth did a program. He did a similar thing. He went to like an end of life care home, and his wife was all. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but she was dressed up and like made with prosthetics. It was. It, you saw the physical impact on him when he saw it. It was it's kind of scary in terms of that that tangibility point. But um, 
the figures and the feelings bit, you know, as we said, you're never going to do it faster than the computer can do the sums. But the feelings part is one aspect of it. I think the other bit in terms of when you start using more and more digital journeys, it's, is there a bit of quality checking? Is there ability to kind of, you've got more structured data. One of the huge advantages that digital journeys give you is you get more structured data and more volume of data. Once the data becomes more structured, that gives you the opportunity to effectively look at it. Now, whether this is a small advisor firm doing that, I'm not convinced because the, the technologies are fragmented and all that type of stuff. But the bigger firms, how do you start to have that almost oversight of where people are interacting, where the where the changing stuff, I think is, is a key area of almost, it's not compliance, but it's kind of a, it's an early warning system, a quality, quality piece. And I just think more broadly, the more data you get, the more chance you've got to spot really interesting customer behavior patterns. We can't pretend that you, you'd be able to work it out. There's too much data. As long as the data is structured, you need those abilities, the radar. It's how is the radar to find out that pattern and, and almost go, there's something that we need to look into here. So I think they're the kind of potential use cases for me for an advice firm. It's it's not necessarily, and you know, I'm sure it will be chances where it can give advice, but it's more about how it fits in an overall end-to-end process that either allows you to have more time, it allows you to hone into the bits that matter, or it gives you confidence that actually the overall cost of running your business, the overall risks you're exposed to, you understand them better, you can manage them better, that allows you to either increase the quality of your service, uh, reduce the cost of your service, increase the all that type of aspect. So yeah, no one should pretend it was a, it's a silver bullet. It's, it's how it fit. I think more and more is how do these things fit into a technology ecosystem? The ability to join and connect becomes really, really important. And Gillian, do you think with bearing that in mind, do you think this is potentially where there could be a lot of job displacement and redundancies if people are looking at processes and how we can do that? Or are we also talking about opportunity, what Ben says, where there are a vast amount of data? So could there be a retraining opportunity for other people within the advice process? Yeah, it's a really interesting one. We've probably all got a view, haven't we, about um, job losses and what this could look like. I, I I like to think that this could make people's jobs more interesting, yeah? And that it enables them to focus on the things that they do well because it does the heavy lifting behind the scenes. So, and I think roles might change, but it doesn't mean to say that it'll be kind of like lots of people sitting at home now twiddling their thumbs, which I could see it like that. And I think... We're still in early days for advisors to you know, think about how they're actually using this within the business. And I think at, at this stage, we're really just looking at efficiency from for, from what I've seen. Now, how does it help me write a better suitability report? And I think to Ben's point, obviously, can we use the data better? Can we actually take time to sit back and analyse the data? But let's face it, most advisors aren't um, data analysts or technology experts. So I do think some of them might need some help and you know one of the things in our november surveys we'll be asking about how our advisors starting to think about using this and where might it fit within the business i think there's a lot of if i could call it test and learn going on you know like let's let's try things out let's see how it might work and and i think you raised a point as well about you know we've, we've got to be careful with some of this stuff um you know, it's it shorters and um, we were an early investor into OpenAI, and we actually have our own version of chat gpt which means two things. One is, is, is actually you've got to think about protecting IP, right? And, and interestingly, I was on a call last week with an advisor and she said, we've started to think about putting an AI policy in our business because we can't just have people putting lots of data into ChatGPT 
you've got to think about data protection and put all things around it. We're really starting to get our heads around all of that and and we're a bit worried about what we're doing. So, you know, we're seeing people now having closed systems that might access the open AI, but actually the responses that are coming back are protected. So I, I think there's a lot of areas where we do need to think about this quite carefully. And I love this term that um, the AI can hallucinate. It's how they describe it, where effectively, yeah, there's a gap, let's just invent it. So I do think that we still have to have a four-eyes check on anything that's produced, right? I heard a great story the other week where AI was being used in football on the B place to track the ball. You know, it has the little dots and it, it and it tracked the footballer's head and not the ball, right? So, you know, we are, you know, we've just got to be, I'm not saying that it's bad, like, I'm just saying it's early days and, and it's still learning and we've got to be careful. But for me, you know, data protection and security, I think is, is quite important. But a really interesting use case that we've got is um we spend a lot of time meeting advisors, speaking to clients, and particularly on calls like this, we can now record them. We can take that recording, we can put it into our own version of AI, and it can um, basically summarize and produce a file note with actions for us. Now, what we then do is, is check that, and then we can put it automatically into Salesforce. Now, if you think about the potential time reduction, back to what I was saying earlier about where can it do some of the heavy lifting so that we can all spend more time in, in front of all our different kinds of clients. So, you know, a bit of tests of learning. I think we're, I think we're still at the early stages of really understanding the power of some of this technology, but let's just also be mindful of some of the, of some of the risks. And I noticed the others on this webinar, you know, nodding when I talked about protecting IP, client data, all, all, all of that security piece. I don't want to be the bringer of doom and gloom. That's not how I feel about this at all, far from it. But I think we just have to be careful in terms of how we're using it and where we're putting the data. Ben, do you, you want to come back? You know, I, I was just—I was saying, don't apologise, Joe. I think you're spot on. I think this is that there's, there's, I don't know, there's different aspects, right? You see some firms that are so scared of this they won't touch it and believe it's kind of head in the stand ostrich, so they ignore it. Then you've got others that are kind of you're super excited, but then you kind of blindly run into stuff and almost forget there's some real challenges, and it's almost the things you might have done in the first. Eight, 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 six to nine months, eight months or whatever of this. God, you've given away all this information that you should never have. It's the equivalent of, you know, when people used to email stuff to the home personal email address and funnily enough, people started getting told off. You're effectively doing that, but um, people aren't realising. So it's kind of, no, I was just um, sympathising. It's a voice of reason, but it's the balance of there's so many people that, there's the, it's how do you not get the naysayers going, oh, well, that's exactly why you shouldn't do this. It's not. It's about due diligence, as Ian said. It's this, it's about doing it safely, appropriately, and it, yeah, for me, it comes back to what's the use case, right? Why? Who is it going to benefit? Does it benefit colleagues? Does it benefit customers? What What does it do? Who is it? Who is it benefiting? That that should keep you safe and following a sensible path. Thanks, Ben. Ian, can I? I'll just come to you, but I'd, I'd like you to focus on the on the ethical and regul regulatory uh, issues because, from a, my perspective, a consumer's perspective, which is what I am. If someone's putting a VR headset on me and potentially showing me what my future life could be, I think that's scary. And me being me, quite cynical, um, I would be thinking, are you just presenting a worst case image to uh, to obviously help the advisor obviously get the business, etc.? So you, when you're talking about bias, when you're talking about you know everyone has bias, AI has got bias, etc., could this be used in some kind of nefarious manner? 
to put people like me like oh my god i need to invest and um, pretty damn quick so you know from an ethical perspective if we could just talk about some of those potential issues well um i mean all these you know one of the joys of the technology is it can all be archived it can all be recorded um anything you know there's so much potential for all sorts of nefarious uses of technology let's not even go near deep fakes but you know i think we need to recognize um and by the way i think it's a when not if the fca will require a backdoor into every advisor system the sec has been going through institutions and is now getting into rias in the states where they want a backdoor that they can go and have a look at any time they like and um, that will happen over here we should prepare for it and we shouldn't be afraid of it. It will be a good thing to make sure that those systems and processes uh, cannot be abused. I mean, I mean, coming back to um, ethics, I think there is a fascinating question for our industry um, that, that, that's around, you know, more and more advice businesses are being set up for, as B Corps. A lot of consumers are looking to do business with B Corps. And if you look at it, it's generally accepted now that AI across all forms of professional services businesses will reduce the workload by about 40%. And I think that gives us a fascinating opportunity. So are we going to say that taking that 40% out means more profits for owners and tech companies and everything else or actually going to say well hang on a minute can we start moving towards financial advice businesses working three days a week can we improve the quality of life for our employees i think three days a week may be a bit of a push um although i know a lot of advice firms that only work four days a week now um even on traditional models i know one or two that only work two days a week but you know that that's very very rare and they're on call for their clients whenever they need to. But I think we really do need to look at that we're facing between artificial intelligence, um, medical technology and, and energy technology. We are facing in the next 20 years a transformation the likes of which humanity has never seen before. It will make the Industrial Revolution look like a blip. And the, and the scariest thing out there, and, and there's, again, a lot of work that's been done on this, is our governmental pro, you know, processes cannot adjust fast enough to this new world. And that's going to be a huge challenge for regulators um, as well. But I want to come on to one other point that's really important, I believe, is advisors need to start thinking about what their tech budgets are going to be. And now I've been saying for some time that they maybe need to be three times what they've been currently. I'm currently thinking I might be lowballing that. You know, a lot of this tech, um, us, Ben, to build it the first time is incredibly expensive. Second users, virtually free. But building it the first time and to a high standard is a really deep pockets exercise. Um and these these things aren't going to be cheap. One final point I'll make this before handing over is you can't ignore this. It's not going to go away. Um, there's an off 
repeated quote that originally came from a lady called Trisha Rothschild, who used to be the head of global retirement at uh, Morningstar, who a few years ago said, it's not the technology will replace advisors, it's that advisors using technology will replace advisors not using technology. I'd borrow from that and say it's not that AI will replace advisors, but it's advisors using AI that will replace advisors or who don't, or the advisors using AI will have a far easier lifestyle, quality of life than the people trying to work crazily to do all the things manually that AIs can do. Thanks, Ian. Um, we're coming to the end of this podcast, so I'm just conscious of time. So I'll ask you one final question. Um, obviously, we've had a, a very, very good discussion and debate today. So the final question is, so will AI terminate traditional financial planning? Gillian, uh, I'll start with you. Um, no, I don't think it will, um, but that depends on our definition of traditional financial planning. I think if we, meet, if we mean sitting in front of somebody face-to-face getting great quality advice, then there will always probably be a place for that. However, um, I'm just going to share one quick example. Um, Peter Harrison, our group CEO, appeared in a meeting in the US last year as a hologram. Now, two benefits, obviously, saved a, uh, you know, from a sustainability angle, saved a flight across the pond to appear in a meeting. But also, it's again back to how can we test this technology? And apparently, I know it was quite amazing. So I think there... You know, I know we've talked about AI here today, but I think there are other forms of technology as well that we can really use to engage with people. So, you know, I I don't believe that um, the human touch, if you want to call it that, will be completely replaced by by technology and AI. Okay. Uh, But you're a big advocate of other technology that could actually help in many forms of financial planning and and business. I do think we need to think a bit more widely about what that looks like. It's not just AI, I think there's other forms of technology that can help people engage. Okay, Ben, same question. So is it going to terminate traditional financial planning? I I don't think so, but I think it should almost, this is going to sound very daft, it sounds like a theme that's a scene from the Terminator now, it should terminate itself, right? Because actually the financial advice industry is brilliantly robust and resilient. And it reinvents itself all the time. And it has to. My challenge to the industry is it reinvents itself at the last possible minute. It's normally forced upon regulatory change, but it's always doing well for customers and it cares about consumers, right? So my challenge would be it's the, the quote that we've used about is advisors using AI. Um, advisors should want to transform themselves anyway. So I think the traditional form of advice will change because it will just move on. And AI will be one of the things that helps the industry to improve itself further. Uh, it's got to. I just, would, I just wish the industry did it a bit more proactively rather than reactively. Sometimes it feels like you're having to push water uphill. But look, the, the, the foresight of caring about the customer, I think consumer duty only helps that as well. Uh, it crystallizes the need to do the right thing even further. So, yeah, hopefully that gives a bit of a view. Yeah, it does. Thank you, Ben. Ian? Um, well, I think I've already answered that in the advisors who use AI will replace advisors who don't. But I, But there's one other thing. Um, it also goes to Ben's point about, you know, getting ahead of the curve on this. You can't ignore this. And by the way, you know, big tech is looking long and hard at financial advice. Um, we've already got Amazon with a general insurance supermarket in the UK before it's even launched in the US. Um, 
you can't if we wait as an industry until big tech works out how to deliver this we'll be out of the picture you know this is really something in a way they've never needed to do so before i think advisors must have a one-year a three-year a five-year roadmap on how they're evolving their business and how the technology can sort them through that process okay thank you Ian. And I think that's a great way to end this podcast debate today. So thank you, Ben. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Ian, for your insights today. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.